What's the biggest obstacle standing in the way of a vibrant relationship with God? If you said sin, you're probably right. But how do you deal with it? Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah returns to Nehemiah to reveal how God's people handled the problem of sin in their journey to revival. From 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal, here's David to introduce his message, Getting Concerned About Sin. And thank you so much for joining us. We are in the book of Nehemiah, the second half of the book. I've explained a couple of times earlier that the first chapters of Nehemiah describe a building project, and the second half of the book, which we're studying right now, uh, tell us what happened when the people got back in their city and began to live in an ungodly way, and how Nehemiah and Ezra brought them back to faith. Today's a key part of that. This is step number three, uh, getting concerned about sin. Without repentance, there can be no renewal, and we'll see that in a few moments as we study the ninth chapter together. If you would like to have a study guide for this particular series, this newly created study guide is available from Turning Point. You can get it at davidjeremiah.org, along with all of the CDs of the series. Just go to that website, and you will find everything you need to know about our study of 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal. Let me just say this about uh, our resource for the month. I'm going to try to really tell you a lot about this during these days. The resource for this month is the book by O.S. Hawkins called The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. This is a beautiful hardback gift book. It's 210 pages long, and each of the chapters is about one of the prayers. And uh, I just want to tell you that these these chapters are filled with encouragement and practical uh, uh, practical ways to pray. I, I, I want to emphasize again, this is not a book to make you feel guilty about how you pray. It's a book uh, that encourages you to explore new kinds of praying that will really fill your life with meaning. It's our way of saying thank you for your gift to Turning Point during the month of January. So when you send your gift today, ask for your copy of The Prayer Code by O.S. Hawkins. Okay, let's jump into this lesson from Nehemiah chapter 9, Getting Concerned About Sin. Now in the ninth chapter of Nehemiah, the people of God have gathered for a time of feasting and rejoicing. They are so excited that the project of the rebuilding of the walls is finished. They have gathered together around Ezra the scribe as he has opened the word and read the law to them, and they've just been overwhelmed with this truth. They are rejoicing. They are filled with joy. But we read in the ninth chapter, at the beginning of the chapter, that in the 24th day of the month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord, their God, one fourth part of the day and another fourth part they confessed and worshiped the Lord, their God. Now one would think that in this festive occasion, in the rejoicing over the completed project, that the one thing you would never expect to find in such a context would be fasting and sackcloth and ashes and mourning. One would think that the Feast of Tabernacles, which is what they were celebrating, would be the beginning of a long period of joy and forward motion. 
But it was not so. For now came another solemn assembly, and this time the mood has changed. It has changed to that of mourning and confession. It is a reminder to us that after Christmas comes the Lenten season. After the carnival came the confession. Reaction set in, and in their worship, several things began to happen. The Bible says that they gathered together, and they confessed, and they worshiped, and they stood upon the stairs of the Levites, and they cried with a loud voice unto God. And this is no light demonstration of emotionalism, but this is a deep-seated change of heart that has come about through their exposure to the Word of God. It has been the contact with the living Word of God found in the Old Testament law that has caused this tremendous change to come about. There is, in the English prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer, a prayer which is known as the General Confession. Some who have come from liturgical backgrounds have seen and been exposed to this general confession prayer. Part of it reads like this. The scriptures moveth us in sundry places to acknowledge and confess our manifold sins and wickedness. We should not dissemble nor cloak them. These things which are requisite and necessary as well for the body as for the soul. We have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. All of these thoughts from the English Common Prayer Book were implied in Nehemiah's day when his people came together to confess their sin and the sins of their nation. There were personal and national sins which crept into their prayer. They knew they had compromised in their association with the heathen people, and now they wished to be separated from them and renew their faith as people of God, as his chosen and elect ones. And so, as they obey the word of God, the result is that they confess their sin. Now, obviously, we can't talk about every verse in this chapter. We can extract from the chapter its general flow and the principles that God would have for us in this chapter. First of all, as we read the chapter, we discover that as these people confessed their sin, they repented in a spirit of brokenness. Their feasting turned to fasting. Their days of great joy became days of great brokenness. And they cried out to God for forgiveness. I must confess that I cannot remember too many occasions when I have witnessed that among the people of God. I think it used to be so in days past. It used to be so that in services, when there was a prayer service or an all-night prayer meeting, sometimes a sense of our responsibility before God would break in upon the people of God, and they would just come unglued and begin to cry out to God in brokenness over their sin. But I don't see much brokenness over sin these days. Men and women, what we learn as we read this chapter is that the seeds of true revival and confession are sown in soil that is watered by the tears of our brokenness and our remorse. As unpopular as that may be, and as unaccustomed to tears as we may be, the Bible says in the first four verses of this chapter, 
that they cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God, and they fasted with sackcloth and earth upon them, and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers, and they were brokenhearted. It seems like the only time we get brokenhearted over our sin is when we get caught. And then it's hard to tell whether our brokenheartedness is because of the sin or because we were not more clever in covering it up. But these people were making no pretense whatsoever. They had just enjoyed a great feast and they just finished a great project. But in the midst of that, the Spirit of God broke in upon them and broke their hearts because of the sin which had become revealed to them in the reading of the Word of God. And so, as they confessed their sin, they repented in brokenness. Now, the second principle that comes out of this chapter is this. As they confessed their sin, they reflected upon their blessings. That truly does seem out of context to me. Why would you, in the broken spirit of a contrite heart, begin to review the blessings of God? And yet, if you read this chapter, the actual prayer begins in the sixth verse. And as you read the chapter, beginning at the sixth verse, the people literally summarize the long history of God's dealings with them. In fact, this chapter, Nehemiah chapter 9, is the longest prayer in the Bible. Did you know that? It is the longest prayer contained in the Bible. There are three long prayers in the Old Testament. You know how you can remember them? One is in Ezra 9, one is in Daniel 9, and this one is in Nehemiah 9. I'm always thankful when the Lord does that so I can remember it. All three of those long prayers. And there are three other places that I know of in the Scripture where you can find a survey of Jewish history that is very concise and intense. You will find that if you're taking notes in Psalm 78, in Psalm 106, and also in Acts chapter 7. Now, if you survey this ninth chapter, you will discover that as the people begin to pray and reflect upon the blessings of God, they cover the whole gamut of everything God has done from creation all the way up to the time of captivity. For instance, in verses 5 through 8, the prayer covers from creation to Abraham. In verses 9 through 15, the prayer covers from the captivity to the Red Sea. In verses 16 through 25, the prayer covers from the wilderness wanderings to the possession of the land. In verses 26 through 31, the prayer covers from the time of judges to the time of captivity. This is the story of God's dealing with his people from the very beginning, from creation all the way up until the time when this passage was written and this prayer was offered. Now let me tell you what the main theme of the prayer is. It is graphically illustrated. Here it is. The main theme of the prayer is God's faithfulness and man's failure. God's faithfulness and man's failure. If you read the prayer and you read the language of it, you will see two phrases. But thou, God's faithfulness. But they, man's failure. Back and forth it goes. One stanza after another. The recitation of God's faithfulness. And then the review of man's failures. And we read it in history and we say, how could that be that these people who were so blessed of God could so have trampled over God's blessing 
and not followed through with gratitude. And then we think about ourselves and we realize that the history of the people of Israel is simply the history of God's people in every generation. We are so blessed. I could not help but think that we who are modern Americans have in our homes dozens of copies of the Word of God in every translation that's ever been translated. And while there are people who have never yet had the language translated so that they could read the Word of God, we have it there available and we don't even get up ten minutes early so we can read it or take any time during the day to reflect upon it. Oh, how we enter into the prayer of these people of Israel, God's faithfulness and man's failure. In verses 5 through 15, as the people counted their blessings one by one, they found them to be so innumerable. Notice the constant repetition in verses 6 through 15 of the little connective, the word and, as they reflect upon God's goodness. And I can't read the whole chapter, but you can follow sort of as I pick out some of these phrases. And thou preservest them all. Thou didst choose Abraham and broughtest him forth out of the Ur of the Chaldees and gaveth him the name of Abraham and madest a covenant with him and did see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heardest their cry by the Red Sea and showest signs and wonders upon Pharaoh and didst divide the sea before them and their persecutors thou threwest into the deeps. Moreover, thou lettest them in the day by a cloudy pillar and in the night by a pillar of fire and speakest with them from heaven and madest known unto them thy holy Sabbath and broughtest forth water from them out of the rock and promised them that they should go into the possessed the land and, and, and. Isn't that the way God deals with us? You just have to keep putting these together, one string after another. What has God done for you today? Well, let me tell you what he's done. He's done this, and he's done that, and he's done this, and he has done that, and he just keeps pouring his blessing. God is so faithful to us. In our worst day, the faithfulness of God puts us in a better position than the best day a person outside of Christ can ever have. God's faithfulness. And if you read back through that section of Scripture, you will see the revelation of God. In verse 6, he's the God of creation. In verse 7, he's the God of grace. In verse 9, he's the God who answers prayer. In verses 10 through 12, he's the God of deliverance. In verse 13, he's the God of revelation. In verse 15, he's the God who supplies. There is none like our God. That's what that prayer says. I've taken in my Bible, I've marked it all up, yellow and red and all different colors. I've put God's faithfulness in one section, and then I've colored man's failure in another. And you know what? The faithfulness of God is stretched out far beyond the descriptive failures of man. God is so much more faithful to us, and yet we just keep failing him. In fact, if you read this chapter carefully, you will discover that God is gracious. These are terms used of him. He is merciful. He is great. He is mighty. He is just, and he is good. Now watch this. But man is proud and rebellious and disobedient and evil and sinful and wicked. Now watch what happens in the chapter. God's faithfulness begins at verse 6 and goes all the way down to verse 15. And we've just read that. Thou gavest them bread from heaven for their hunger, brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and promised them that they should go in to possess the land which thou hadst sworn to them. But, verse 16, here it changes. Here's man's failure. 
But they and our fathers dealt proudly, and they hardened their necks and hearkened not to thy commandments, and they refused to obey. Neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon. Here's his faithfulness again. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. Yet when they had made them a molten calf and said, This is thy God that brought thee up out of Egypt and had wrought great provocations. Here's God's faithfulness again. Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein they should go. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them, and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth, and gavest them water for their thirst. Yes, for forty years did you sustain them in the wilderness, so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not ever get old, and their feet never swelled up. Moreover, thou gavest them kingdoms and nations, and didst divide them unto corners. So they possessed the land of Sihon, and the land of King Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Their children also multipliedest thou as the stars of heaven and broughtest them into the land concerning which thou hast promised to their fathers that they should go to possess it. So the children went in and possessed the land and thou subduest before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gavest them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards and olive yards and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. Nevertheless, here it is again, man's failure in response to God's faithfulness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy prophets which testified against them to turn them to thee and they wrought a great provocation. Here we go again. Therefore thou deliveredst them unto the hand of their enemies who vexed them. And here's God's faithfulness. In the time of their trouble when they cried unto thee thou heardest them from heaven and according to thy manifold mercies thou gavest them saviors who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. But after they rested up they did evil again before thee. Therefore leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies, and testifiedest against them that thou mightest bring them again unto thy law. And in the middle of the verse there's now a change from the faithfulness to the failure. Yet they dealt proudly and hearkened not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, and withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and would not hear. Here's God's faithfulness again. Yet many years didst thou forbear them and testifiest against them by thy spirit and thy prophets. Here's their failure again. Yet would they not give ear, therefore gavest thou them unto the hand of the people of the lands. Here's nevertheless again God's faithfulness. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. Isn't that some story? 
God's faithfulness, man's failure. And God comes back and wraps his loving arms around us and he woos us back into fellowship. And then because we're hard-necked people, we go out and we fail him again. And then God comes back in his mercy and brings us back. And you would think that after we go through that cycle a number of times, we would stop and reflect upon the goodness of God and say, God, I don't want you to have to do that in my life again. But we are just like the Israelites, and I testify to that. We are a hard-necked people who continue to look at the faithfulness of God in our lives and go our own way only to be wooed back by his love. I want to tell you something, folks. God is not just the God of the second chance. He's the God of the third and fourth and fifth and twentieth and thirtieth chance. And all God's people said, Amen. Were it not for that, we would be consumed in a moment. Isn't that true? So as these people prayed and confessed their sin, they reflected upon their blessing. Isn't that a good thing to do? I wish we had time to just cancel everything for the next four or five hours and just sit down and reflect upon the blessings of God in our lives. How many times has he brought you back? How many times has he been the hound of heaven to come running after you when you were doing your own thing in rebellion against him and he came down and wooed you back to himself where you wanted to be in the first place? Oh, what a loving God we have. Faithful and just and true and righteous altogether. And I want you to notice the third principle is this. As they confess their sin, they recognize their sinfulness. Here are the three principles. Number one, as they confessed their sin, they repented in brokenness. Number two, as they confessed their sin, they reflected on their blessing. And number three, as they confessed their sin, they recognized their sinfulness. I want you to read with me in this text, verses 32 and 33, which is their confession. After they've prayed this magnificent prayer, here is their confession. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and the terrible God, who keepest covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before thee that hath come upon us, on our kings, on our princes, on our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all thy people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Now watch this. Howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right, and we have done wickedly. Do you know what that is, folks? That is biblical confession. Do you know what it means to confess? It means to say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. Do you know how easy we skirt around the issue? Well, Lord, I'm sorry. I don't think I did as well as I should have. We have an awful time coming to grips with just coming before God and saying, God, you were right about that sin. I was wrong. You were right, and I confess it to you. I say about that what you say about it, and I bring it to you in confession. I want us to reflect upon what it truly means to confess our sin. Some of it may cause brokenness in our heart if we really see it as God sees it. Surely, as we reflect upon God's goodness in our lives and recognize our failures in light of his faithfulness, we can understand how right it is for us to confess. I am not an introspective. I do not believe in spending great periods of time trying to discover long-lost root causes for current problems. But I think that in our fast-paced, fast-lane society, we have lost out in the opportunity to get away by ourselves and reflect upon where our life is going and where we are headed and how we're doing 
and whether or not we're where God wants us to be. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we are um, walking through the steps of spiritual renewal, and there is no such thing as renewal without repentance. And uh, the book of Nehemiah illustrates that. I hope you are taking each step with us. They're so vital, so relevant for today. And uh, we're glad that you've joined us for this series as we begin the new year together. Um, just a little over two months from now, we'll be leaving for our tour of Israel. The Holy Land tour of 2022 begins March the 22nd, actually, goes through the 1st of April. We have a whole lot of folks that are already going with us, but we've saved room for you. And you can find out about all of the things you need to know to go with us by going to our website, click on the Israel button, and it will tell you what you need to do and who you need to call and Get ready to go with us. It will be an amazing time that you will never forget. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of O.S. Hawkins' latest book, The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in several durable and stylish cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. There's lots of advice telling you how to set and reach your goals. But before you dive in, it's a good idea to know God's plan for your life. Find joy in pursuing the next steps God has for you in Dr. David Jeremiah's new book, Forward, Discovering God's Presence and Purpose in Your Tomorrow. God does have a perfect plan for you, and it's time to embrace your life's purpose. It's time to move forward. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca slash forward. Thomas Carlyle was a 19th century Scottish philosopher who was raised in a Christian home and who later abandoned his faith. But there is evidence of his biblical upbringing in words like these. Wonder, he wrote, is the basis of worship. 
The psalmist David seems to have understood the role of wonder in worship as well. When writing the worshipful Psalm 8, he wrote, When I consider your heavens, all we have to do is consider what God has created and we immediately have a reason to worship Him. So the next time you are amazed at something God has done, be sure to thank Him for it. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's wonders on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.